Well, a very warm hello to all of you on another very cold and dark wintry morning, especially a welcome to all of you visiting. I know that we've got people in the room who are visiting from as far as Portugal this morning. Uh, yeah, and especially a welcome uh, to you guys watching online as well. I am finally feeling festive uh, after last weekend, my wife Joe and I Uh, with uh, my brother and sister-in-law who we live with and my three-month-old niece went to get our Christmas tree from Moores Valley. Uh, so we finally got our Christmas decorations up. It's feeling all festive uh, in our house. Uh, does anyone here uh, love a real tree over a fake tree? Show me who you are. Yeah, come on. And then any fanatics for the fake tree? Reuse, recycle? Less of you than I thought. Okay, wow, all right. Come on with the fake trees. Um, the real trees. Uh, so, has anyone not got their decorations up? Wow, okay, there's, there's yeah, more hands than I expected for that. Um, so, one of my pet peeves, and my wife's going to scold me for this, is, is just the TV being on in the background. Just, and no one's watching it, it's just on. Mm, okay, yeah. So, <laughs> I also live with two dogs. Now, I'm told that the dogs love to have the TV on. But not only that, they love ITV. It's something I have to believe by faith. But this is what I'm told. The dogs love to watch TV. They love ITV. And so with our living arrangement with the two dogs and Joe and I and Jenna and Jack, my brother and sister-in-law and our uh, newborn niece, Isabel, uh, it's quite a cramped house. And um, we actually can't fit all of the furniture in our bedroom. So... There's a chest of drawers in the lounge with some of my clothes in. So every morning I have to walk through the lounge to get some of my clothes out. And so the TV's on every morning. The dogs are there watching ITV. And, um, and it's good morning, Britain, or, or, or this morning. Thank you, Joe. This morning uh, was on, um, as it is every morning. So Tuesday morning, this week, I'm walking through the lounge. The dogs are there. I'm getting my clothes out. And... Um, and Holly and Philip, at the moment I walk through, they're interviewing over Zoom a professional psychologist who has come on, good morning, this morning, this morning, to tell you what your Christmas decorations say about you. Isn't that great? Yeah, because, you know, I know we've got a couple of psychologists in the room, but we all want to know who we are, don't we? And if our Christmas decorations tell us, then great. So... We all want to know who we are. Um, much like the story I came across of a young woman who one day brings home her fiancé to meet the parents. They have dinner together. It's a lovely time. And after dinner, uh, the mother tells the husband, why don't you take this young man into the study and find out a bit more about him, maybe over a drink. So uh, it might be helpful to picture the moment in the film Catch Me If You Can between Leonardo DiCaprio and Martin Sheen. Uh, so Amy Adams, who plays the character Brenda, uh, she brings Leonardo DiCaprio home with her. Um, he's about to propose to her, and he's very charming, very charismatic. Um, and so this is just an illustration. This is not the story I'm about to tell you, but, but it might help you to picture it. So the, the father takes the young man into the study over a drink, and he asks, well, what are your plans with my daughter? The father asks. Well, I'm a Bible scholar, he replies. 
Now, if you've seen Catch Me If You Can, you'll know this is a very different answer to the one that Leonardo DiCaprio gave. So at this point has been a pilot, a lawyer, and now a doctor. But anyway, in this story, this young fiancé is a Bible scholar. A Bible scholar, hmm, says the father, admirable, but what will you do to provide a house for my daughter such as she is accustomed to? What I will study, the young man replies, and God will provide for us. And how will you buy her a beautiful engagement ring such as she deserves, asks the father. Well, I will study, and God will provide. And children, asks the father, how will you support children? Don't worry, sir, God will provide, replies the fiancé. I am, after all, a Bible scholar. Later, the mother asks, well, how did it go, darling? Because the conversation went on like this, proceeding each time the father questions. The young man insists that God will provide. And so the father says to the mother, well, he has no job and no plans, but the good news is he thinks I'm God. Well, today, my hope and my prayer for us is that we would encounter the Father heart of God. Over the last few weeks in the lead up to Christmas, we've been in this passage, Isaiah 9, looking at this child born to us, on whose shoulders will be the government of the whole earth. And this is a child with four names, four titles. Well, We're no longer watching Catch Me If You Can. We're all getting in a DeLorean this morning to go back to the future, not not 88 miles an hour, that's it, to 1955, but back to the Old Testament 2,700 years ago to the time that Isaiah spoke these words. This is a prophet who is speaking about the future. Now, as we encounter this passage, at the time that Isaiah is speaking, the people of God in Israel are in a rough spot. They're a divided kingdom. There's uh, north and south communities that are at odds with one another. There's rebellion in the hearts of the people, and there's rebellion to God. They're worshiping other gods in place of him, much like all of us do today, whether it's sport relationships, money, success, the endless scroll of screen time, technology, entertainment, even church can become an idol. And the people of God are oppressing the poor. Now, this is stuff that God takes really seriously. So he raises up a prophet to come and bring a message to challenge and to bring hope. And the message of Isaiah is that because of your rebellion and your oppression, The nations are going to rise up to conquer us. But the hope is that God has not abandoned us. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. For the people of God 2,700 years ago, there were hard days ahead. But there is hope on the way. The saviour of the world is coming to rescue us from the things we do wrong, the mess of our world and the baggage we carry. And he will be called four names that God speaks through the prophet Isaiah, all about Jesus, the Christ, the one who Christmas is all about. And then 700 years after Isaiah prophesied this, it actually happens. A baby is born, 
And the decorations around him do tell a story that say a lot about who this baby is, along with those who come to visit him in the rich historic narrative of the Christmas story. Jesus is the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. So three weeks ago, Johnny preached to us on Jesus as the wonderful counselor. Two weeks ago, Sarah preached on Jesus as the mighty God. Next week, we'll be concluding as Jesus, our Prince of Peace. But this week, we come to the title, Jesus as our Everlasting Father. This is the confusing one, I think. If you're familiar with Christianity, or even if you maybe have grown up in a Catholic background, you'll, you'll be familiar with the, the, the phrase that we use, in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Even more complex, in the same breath, Isaiah refers to Jesus as a child, a son, a counselor, a prince, even though we worship him as a king, a mighty God, and an everlasting father. So here, it kind of seems like Isaiah is confusing God the son with God the father. So is he? Well, we would say that there are three distinct persons who make up the Godhead, which we call the Trinity. You'll be pleased to know this is not something I'm going to unpack today. So (laughs) let's just keep it simple. The Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father. So is Isaiah confusing the two? Well, the good news is no. This is no contradiction or paradox. 2,700 years ago, the prophet Isaiah wasn't even conceiving of a Trinitarian God. This is not about the relation of God to himself. This is about his relation to us. Isaiah is saying that the Messiah who is coming is going to be father-like. This is about his essence and his nature. When Isaiah prophetically speaks the word of God and calls Jesus the everlasting father, he's making the profound point that Jesus is the king who treats his people more like children than subjects in a kingdom. When it comes to the way that Jesus treats us, Isaiah is emphasizing God's protection and provision. His love for us is like a father to his children. So Jesus comes into the world to reveal the father to us. He does not come as the Father. He comes to reveal the heart of the Father. Because if you want to know what God is like, you just need to look at Jesus. Why? Jesus came on that first Christmas to reveal to us the everlasting Father heart of God. Now, that being said, you may be here watching or uh, you, you may be watching online. And, and actually, this is just hard to hear. I want to recognize that for some of us, when we talk about fathers, your story is a difficult one. For some of you, as we explore this topic, this is uncomfortable, and the deepest pain that you carry is actually because of your relationship with your dad. Maybe he was never there. Maybe he left the family. Maybe he passed away untimely. Maybe he was physically there but emotionally absent because he was just always too busy. Maybe he was even abusive. Some of this is my story and much of what I'm processing in counseling at the moment. But for some, and I do hope for many of us, your experience was one of a present and a loving father. 
But I want to acknowledge that for others, the message of Jesus revealing the heart of the Father is experienced right now, maybe even physiologically, as pain and sadness um, because of loss or trauma. And if that's you, then my prayer is that God would renew our hearts um, and our minds um, and redeem the associated experiences of our fathers. Because it is true that Jesus reveals the father heart of God. So firstly, this fatherhood is everlasting because Jesus is everlasting. The baby born in Bethlehem, we read in scripture in the book of Hebrews, is the image of the invisible God. And then the way that John chooses to begin his gospel, mirroring the the very beginning of the Bible, is in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. And then in the very next verse of our passage in Isaiah, Isaiah 9, verse 7, It continues, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. In Revelation, Jesus reveals, I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord, who was and is and is to come. He is as everlasting as the Father. And the Hebrew in our passage in Isaiah literally refers to uh, this word everlasting um, in the way that we think about eternity. Now, eternity is a, it's a thing beyond us. It's really hard to get our head around the concept. And I don't know if we've got any mathematicians in the room, but I'm pretty sure that mathematicians say that the concept of infinity or eternity is actually uh, meaningless. Um, but scientifically... We only really have two options to to kind of ground eternity in a framework. Either the universe is eternal or the creator is, who brings into existence a trinity of trinities in the continuum of time, space, and matter. That's for another time. So, (laughs) scripture is clear that Jesus is equal in this same eternal status as the Father. He is everlasting. Secondly, Jesus reveals the Father. Now, the journey that I've been going on in coaching and counseling is the one between the head and the heart. And I think it's the journey that all of us are on over our whole lives as we come to Scripture, as we come to God, as we fellowship with one another. We're all longing for the moment, for the encounter, searching for the love of the Father when it connects with our hearts in a way that really brings transformation and makes a difference in our lives and to those around us. So I want to turn, and this is the main scripture for this morning that I'm going to draw a couple of things out of, to Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 15, verses 11 to 24. If you want to turn in your own Bibles, if you've got them, or it's coming up on the screen. This is a very well-known passage of scripture. It's the parable of the lost son, otherwise known as the parable of the prodigal son. And I'm going to read it for us now. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons, The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. 
Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. I was grateful recently to have met Pete Hughes at uh, the Cause to Live For conference at Trent Vineyard uh, just a few weeks ago. Uh, And I want you to know that I've borrowed much of this context from him that I uh, am about to share with us. So I want you to know this is totally plagiarized. (laughs) So the son in this story, he rejects his father. He brings shame on the family. He takes his inheritance early and he spends it on reckless living. And then a famine sweeps through the land. He hits rock bottom. And uh, this is how you know when you've hit rock bottom in life if you're sat with pigs and you're like yearning for their food. Uh, He hits rock bottom and he realizes that he should go back to his father. So he begins this long journey home, and he rehearses this speech, Father, I've sinned against heaven and earth, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, uh, but maybe I can go back as a servant. And he's met with this moment of reconciliation, which maybe some of us in our own stories long for. He experiences the embracing love of the Father. Now, this is a very Jewish story. You and I, most of us watching this online or in the room, I'm sure, are probably very Western in our thinking, which has something to do with the, the way that we, we, we process logic, we're analytical in, in, a, in the way that we think and, uh, and process the world around us. But this is told through an Eastern lens, which means we often miss details because of the culture gap between the first century of the original audience of those listening and all the blessings and curses of our modern age today. The first thing for us to know is that the nation of Israel, so the Jewish people listening to this story as Jesus tells it, they have a title, and that title is God's Son. In the Exodus story, when Moses goes to Pharaoh to liberate the people, the Lord said to Moses, when you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I've given you the power to do, but he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. So these people hearing this story are understanding that actually we are the son. 
And when we follow the history, these people, they then reject God, their father. And as a result, they end up in exile in Babylon. Well, fast forward to the first century, the time of Jesus. The people have returned from Babylon to Jerusalem, but now the Romans are ruling over them, crushing their identity and their longing to be reconciled to their father. So Jesus, as a rabbi, tells the story of a son rejecting the father, ending up in a far-off land. And they would understand that he's telling them their story, and it's also our story. Because all of us, we run off into things, trying to fulfill our own way of living and what truth is, my truth, and trying to live our best life. And we worship counterfeit idols, and we drink from empty wells, and we place our hope in what the Bible calls broken cisterns, all because we're unconsciously longing for a relationship with the Father as it should be. Just like at Christmas, you know, we substitute the darkness of winter and the bleakness of the lost buds and blooms uh, on empty branches with brightly colored lights. And we replace the warmth of the sun with uh, fires, um, or if you're like me and my wife, hot water bottles, pretty much constantly the kettle is going. We're compensating for a hope to reassure us that the gathering night and the cold is only temporary. All of earth is groaning in its absence of the warming embrace of the Father's love. Secondly, in this context of the first century, of the original listeners, uh, the crowd of people that would have been in front of Jesus as he's telling this story, there was something known as the Kezazar Ceremony. And it went something like this, that if a son rejected the father, and this is what people would really do, if, if a son rejects the father and he leaves the family to go and live with Gentiles, which brings shame on the wider community, and if he ever dared to come back, he would go to the city gates, and what would happen is the older men in the city would come out to meet, to confront, to intimidate this young man, and they would throw down a clay pot on the floor, smashing it, symbolizing that your relationship with us is broken because of the shame that you've brought on us. And so this separated him from his family and his community. And the word kezazar literally means to cut off because of the shame that you've brought. And so the people listening understood that if we're cut off from the Father's presence, we can never live life fully. The third detail in this story and final detail for us to be aware of, is that dignified Jewish fathers would never run. You would walk gracefully, but you would never run, because to run, you would have to hitch up your robes and expose your bare legs. And in that culture, it was completely shameful to do that. Male slaves would run, young Jewish boys would run, but Jewish fathers would never run. And so what's so profound about this story is that as it's told, as the son is returning, everyone's expecting the Kezazar ceremony. But there isn't a moment where the men in the community come out to the city gates to confront this man and throw down a clay pot, smashing it and, and, and symbolizing his shame. Instead, 
instead of a moment where the son is humiliated, the father humiliates himself in place of the son. By hitching up his robes and running towards him, which was a completely shameful thing to do, he humiliates himself in place of the son. Well, in the story, we hear that the, the father is waiting for the son to return. And, and he's watching on his land, and he sees him far off in the distance coming. And, and so the son is rehearsing the speech, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against earth, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father runs out to meet him. Well, when the father meets the son in this moment of reconciliation and essentially forgives him, if, if, if we know that this is what the father is going to do, then why does he need to run? And it's because he has to get there before the community perform the Kezazar. So the son, he gives the speech, I'm so unworthy. But the father, he, he runs out to meet him and he throws a cloak around him. And he places a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. And these are all symbols of sonship. All of the father's response is one of unconditional love because this son was dead and now he's alive. He was lost and now he's found. What kind of father would humiliate himself publicly and embrace his son after the son had brought such shame? And this is Jesus 2,000 years after the prophet Isaiah, himself acting as a prophet, saying, this is what your dad is like. You rejected your father. And you and I, just like those listening to this story, we are in a far-off land trying to get back to him by the way that we all live, replacing him with addictions and imitations so much of the time. But the hope And the good news for us is that there is a father who is so loving, so gracious, so kind that he would come running to us as a child, as a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting father and a prince of peace to reveal himself to us and then to take on our shame and in our place pay the price for all of our wrongdoing to reconcile us to the father. And this is the story woven through the fabric of your heart and the history of humanity, that whoever you are, whether you know God today, is that the hope that your soul longs for at Christmas as Jesus the Messiah comes and at Easter a few months later, just before Jesus tells this story, that Messiah is stripped naked publicly. He's beaten. He's spat on. He's humiliated. And he's nailed to a cross with his arms stretched open in the posture of embrace. And he says that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Charles Spurgeon says, it is a mighty marvel that he who was an infant should at the same time be infinite. He who is a man of sorrow should also be God over all who is the fountain of joy. Glorious mysteries are hidden in his person so deep that he must reveal himself to us so that we may know him. 
He's, he's not discovered through research nor discerned through reason. To know him is life eternal. Earthly fathers let us down. But this father in this prodigal son story, Jesus is saying, that's who God always is. God is always like the father in this story. And that's what this world needs. And you can know him today if you don't already, by turning from the people, the voices, the experiences that you're already putting your trust and your hope in, that you're following in his place, which you know deep down maybe are empty wells and broken cisterns which don't fill you up. And you can choose to follow Jesus and trust him instead. Jesus says in John 14, if you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Believe me when I say I am in the Father and the Father is in me. My own relationship with my dad has been quite challenging over the years. But God, in my story, was really gracious and blessed me with someone who he brought into my life who has been very much a, a father figure to me, a spiritual father who's become a great friend of mine. And then when I met my wife Jo, her father Tim, just such a lovable, wonderful man uh, who, again, kind of demonstrates to me what, what fatherhood looks like in a family. Uh, and so we became really close, but then sadly, around this time last year, he died uh, very suddenly, very unexpectedly, uh, very tragically. Um, and then over the last three months, I've been watching my brother-in-law become a, a father and, and watching fatherhood in that context. I myself, I'm not yet a father, but I know what it is to need one. Uh, another time I'll tell the story of this year that I've had, but in and through it all, I've needed the love of a father. And so there are many in this room and watching online who are fathers, who have lost a father, who have just become fathers, who are unfulfilled fathers, who are father figures. All of us, we need a father. But it's an everlasting Father, the real Father of Christmas is the everlasting one to those who trust in Him. And a true Father never ceases to exercise kindness to a child, nor does Jesus cease to love you. And He gives us a choice. It's an act of obedience. It's one that my wife and I were discussing as we were walking in Moores Valley last weekend, picking out our Christmas tree. That, that in moments of hardship and great tragedy and just the realities of life, it's a choice to receive the love of the Father running towards us, his arms stretched open in the posture of embrace to receive us as his sons and daughters. So my prayer this morning is that you would come to him wherever you are, whatever life looks like at the moment, however hard this Christmas season may be or however many, however joyful it may, um, may be shaping up to be, is that you would come this morning, come to the everlasting Father and encounter his love.